Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Howdy, folks. That was Alan Dershowitz at the top of the broadcast defending Louis XIV, excuse me, President Trump, from impeachment articles with the argument, I am the state, the state is me. This is the Texas Order podcast. Nick's smoking Smarties. Matthew's playing smoke on the water. Candace is glaring at me with those smoky eyes. Connor is smoking the opium of the masses, and I'm just blowing smoke up your asses. It's a Sunday morning here, and we are going to be talking about the horse race of it all. The Democratic primaries, the Iowa's caucus cock-up. We have got some lovely folks from the order in the room today. Matthew, you have done work here at UT on voting in the past. If you want to kind of give yourself an intro, explain that that stuff, explain the ranked voting stuff that you've been working on. We would love to hear it. Hi, I'm Matthew Cox. I am theoretically a writer at the Texas Order. Uh, I've done a lot. He, uh, Wes is right. I've done a lot when it comes to voting here on campus. I've helped out with Hook the Vote, which is our, our student government agency for voter registration. And I also helped change the actual student government voting um, system to a, ranked, uh, to a ranked voting system over the first past the post, which was my freshman year project. There we go. Um, and also in the room with me today, we've got my co-host, Connor. Connor, how you doing? Doing all right. There we go. We've got yeah, Nick so Romano of the Texas Order and the Clement Center. Nick, how you doing? Never better. Did you uh, get caught up in the Austin Marathon traffic and whatnot? I did not. I avoided it narrowly. Oof. Yeah. No. It's uh, those runners. You're uh, you're Ken there, right? I, yeah, I am one of them, <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah. Well, running today with us is the Iowa caucus cock up we had some interesting stuff going on there in terms of mayor cheat pulling ahead of bernie hey 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 yeah let's be careful here we've got oh actually um connor your your involvement with the the Buttigieg campaign what uh what exactly are you doing there um so right now just kind of working on um organizing campus right now uh at ut specifically and um uh talking with the campaign about how we're going to organize the state's um college outreach Gotcha, gotcha. And, uh, you, you know, greasing hands, paying off the shadowy companies that run the voting apps, or is that is that that's another department, right? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, they say uh, political Twitter is nothing like real life. So. Sure, yeah. <laughs> We're talking about the Iowa's caucus that happened a couple weeks previous with the interesting results there. Matthew, you've done work in this area. Are you heartened, disheartened, disgruntled, furious? What exactly are your feelings about the way that the system turned out in Iowa, all of the kind of issues with the app and the reporting? Well, this is unfortunately probably going to be a bit detrimental, at least to the Iowa caucus. Um, there's a big thing when it comes to getting people to vote is they have to believe that the process exists and that the process works. And the fact that it took five days for the final, uh, for the final, co- uh, for the final count, that's, uh, that's going to be horrible for turnout. That's going to be horrible for registration. People are not going to believe that the democratic party has the capability to run an Iowa caucus. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm curious to see how badly this will affect super Tuesday because people will assume that if it worked badly in Iowa, it might work badly elsewhere. Now, so the Iowa caucuses are unique in the way that they're structured. I mean, it's not 
precisely a ranked voting system, but it, it, it follows the broad outlines of that in the way that if your first choice doesn't get up to 15%, you then have to, you know, you're essentially, you're, you're free to go and then support some other candidates. So was this a, a structural issue with the way that ranked voting works in general, or was it really specific to the Iowa caucuses and the, the app and reporting stuff going on there? Well, the Iowa caucuses do use a system that's a little bit like ranked voting. They've got your first choice and your uh, second choice, which is only really that bad in the fact that it's a bit complicated for the precinct runners. It's not that bad from the standard of most caucuses, as caucuses can be complicated just from being the inherent you, the inherency of having to go and stand in different parts mm. of the room to figure out what you're doing. Um, it's not so much a problem with the system. Uh, I personally, if I would say a actual ranked choice voting probably would have been more effective or faster. But the, the big issue here is the app, right? That should have never been uh, uh, that should have never been approved, right? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, uh, as a former engineer and people who a uh, guy who knows programmers, is that. Um, you should not get software anywhere near the voting system at all. Those two things should not exist in the same sentence. Uh, so that was a structural fa- a failure from the outset. And so, Dick, I want to get you in on this. You do some you know, research and whatnot and, and writing about security and, and issues there. Is this something that you see as a as a national security issue in terms of foreign involvement, or was this really localized to the Iowa caucuses? Um, you know, we, we saw in just to intro the the bit here the app was the reporting app so it wasn't that they were voting on this app it wasn't that you know the iowa voters were really really having much interaction with this app at all but it was just that the reporting was was screwed up so is this something that you see as a problem going forward or is this really just localized well, my reaction was that I couldn't decide if I was having flashbacks to 2016 or <laughs> foreshadowing of, of 2020, and whether or not there was foreign involvement in uh, in, in the mix-up of counting the, the votes, counting the ballots. It doesn't really matter because it has the same effect of um, underscoring the distrust of democracy mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. many voters have. Um, there, there's a quote by uh, a former philosopher – um, Hannah Arendt that yeah. goes uh, everything is possible and nothing is true and I think you definitely saw this in the both in the lead up to the caucuses the Des Moines Register poll considered to be the gold standard mm-hmm. they pulled their uh, they pulled their poll and they didn't publish it a few days before the actual caucus and then there was um, a lot of questions posed in the Twitterverse of you know first you first you have these that poll, and then you have the delays, and a lot of a lot of seeding and of conspiracy theories, um, and so it looks like. And in addition to that, there has been reporting after the fact that um, either uh, Republican operatives or um, possibly for for an individuals, no one really knows, but that the uh, the phone lines were jammed, the kind of helplines mm. for troubleshooting the um, for troubleshooting the app were overloaded with just random callers um so it seems like you might be a you wouldn't uh cast any doubt on someone who says uh that democracy might have died in des moines sure yeah and so connor i'm gonna go to you on this one because it a lot of the kind of conspiratorial stuff does involve um mayor Buttigieg and, and you know there there are some interesting connections with acronym which is the kind of parent company that um is closely related to the 
you know company that run and demoed the app shadow which i mean if you were ever looking for a conspiracy you know shadowy organizations acronym and shadow that's just absolutely teeing it up so what exactly do you think you know pete should mayor pete should do in response to all these accusations about conspiracy theories in response to just the kind of general cloud or to the general pall that's hanging over his you know when you know as far as we know in the iowa caucuses well i'm not sure i'm not sure how much of that is is just smoke on twitter and stuff Mm -hmm. like that as opposed to what's in real life i mean you saw a lot of people right i mean pete there's something that a lot of people are finding um that they like about pete Buttigieg, and you saw that in new hampshire Mm. um and i think at the end of the day like that message and 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 they're going to re-canvas and you know they're taking every single step the democratic party to make sure that this is a fair process and and we you know um we not only would like to win but we'd also like to deserve to win you know Mm -hmm. in that sense and so um i think they're going to be re-canvassing i believe they start today um either way i think this is going to just kind of turn into the 2012 mitt romney rick santorum kind of debacle where you know it wasn't clear how long the winner was and then when it finally was that decided that um that you know at that point it didn't really matter in the campaign uh and so i kind of think that you know both the sanders and the Buttigieg campaign came out of iowa both with their spins and their wins Mm -hmm. um i think honestly the biggest winners of those nights would have been the uh like Biden, Klobuchar, and Warren folks who got off without having to give like a concession speech mm-hmm. um, because the results were so uh, hazy. And so uh, I think that we're going to see him continue uh, going forward and hopefully uh, doing well here in Super Tuesday. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm kind of plugged into libertarian Twitter and it's, you know, it's always funny to see the, the same people who think that the government is just like incompetent, can't do anything. Also, when it comes to conspiracies, think that the government is like omniscient and controls everything. There have been some really mm-hmm. kind of funny uh, contradictions there. But Matthew, I want to go to you looking forward to the New Hampshire primaries. They are, you know, they are conducted in a much more kind of traditional way with secret voting and and ballots and paper trails and whatnot is this something that you think is going to bleed into the the new hampshire primaries or or has bled into the new hampshire primaries and then looking forward to super tuesday is this kind of broader cloud over the way that the iowa caucuses were conducted going to affect the kind of trust in the the electoral process going forward well, I feel we almost got off a little lucky when it came to New Hampshire because mm-hmm. a lot more people seemed to had trust in the process. Right. Actually, if anything, people kind of took it as what they typically take Iowa as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a very good indicator of what's coming up, which is weird because New Hampshire is very small. But sure. right. um, it, we still have the process was so much cleaner, especially the fact that it was just a secret ballot. There's no you don't have to go and stay for an hour or so with the caucus system. So it was just a, a cleaner, smoother process. Mm. On Super Tuesday, I have my main concern that the caucuses will still have issues of right. any of the rem- remaining caucuses. Like, for instance, the oh, I want to say Nevada's got their caucus coming up on the 22nd. I'm mm. I'm curious to see if that's going to end well or if people are going to assume it's going to be like Iowa as a, a horrible mess. And so, you know, Connor, I want to go to you on that. What are your thoughts in response to um, Matthew's concerns? I think yeah i think he makes up a good point that the fact that like we saw i mean new hampshire's voter turnout was higher than the 2008 um and so i don't i'm not entirely sure as far as 
how many people are going to be turned away. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, these conspiracy theories and stuff like that are going to, they're always going to be there. I mean, they were also there in 2016 and stuff. And so, um, but at the end of the day, especially with a caucus, right, that's a public forum that everyone in the entire room can see who's voting for who. And so um, this idea that, you know, one campaign or the other is going to fudge the results Mm -hmm. in such a public area like that, um, I think is just unfounded. And so, you know, there there is, I think, a, an interesting argument to be made, and I've, I've heard it being made about the caucus system, that it is kind of a classic civic participation, civic engagement system where you're bringing it literally out into the public square and you are bringing together a community around politics in a way that we just kind of don't really have that, that much anymore in America. You know, Matthew, is that an argument that counterbalances the somewhat obvious problems with the way that caucuses are run or the way that those results are reported and and you know does this kind of debacle argue for the wholesale scrapping of that system the wholesale revision of the way that primaries are run what are your thoughts there ah well in that case i should reiterate myself i don't mean to suggest that the caucus system is bad i actually Mm. do kind of prefer it even though it does take a bit more time and can be a little bit taxing on you know the working man to go out and do Uh, But it does really get the ability for you to go and talk and discuss about interesting ideas and interesting candidates. Like if you want a guy who's, you know, a little bit out there or very or actually far out there, the best place he's ever going to have a a successful chance would be in uh, a caucus. Right. Mm. So you really get to have that kind of final bit of discussion where you can convince people and actually kind of get the good old civic discussion out, which I love. I absolutely love that system. I'm just scared that. The way Iowa's been going, um, it might kind of pull people away from that. Right. And so, Connor, last kind of question on this topic. You know, typically Iowa is more important for signaling or for kind of the the opinions of voters in other you know states than it is for the actual delegates that are, are garnered in that caucus. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the way that the Iowa's caucus results were reported, all of the kind of controversy around that, is going to lessen its value for for Pete Buttigieg or in 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 sort of in a way that Matthew was saying earlier that New Hampshire is going to replace Iowa or do you think that you know Mayor Pete really kind of secured a clear win and that that's going to carry forward so I mean as far as the Iowa thing right this has been a like a discussion within the party is whether you know Iowa and New Hampshire should be starting out the whole process because of how representative it is um and so one i will say as far as we you know we don't know what the results of this re-canvas is going to be like mm-hmm. um especially with the with the difference between the popular vote and the co- like delegate vote um and so i i honestly i don't think that Pete got the win that he you know could have had mm-hmm. in iowa um had it not been for how it, you know much of a mess up this uh canvas this iowa caucus was but um yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he lost out on a big opportunity. Uh, they did, you know, every every op-ed the next day was saying the biggest loser out of the Iowa caucus basically was Pete in that sense because he missed out on that being able to have that night to himself because the day after, right, it was you had the impeachment vote and the sta- like, state of the mm-hmm. union and then the impeachment vote. So it was a really busy week that lost a lot of coverage from this event. All right, next up we have got Joe Casino here to talk about the state of the race in the Lone Star State. Joe, how you doing? Uh, I'm good. How are you, Wes? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. I hear that you are out and about jet setting from the Texas Young Democrats 
conference. How was that? It was nice. You know, we were up in Tyler, Texas, uh, behind the Pine Curtain. Uh, real nice out there. Um, weather was not too bad at all, so can't really complain. A lot of good folks from all across the state came by. Um, people as far out as El Paso were coming. Um, the Texas Young Democrats, um, which, you know, anyone who's a Democrat in the state of Texas can join up until age 40. Um, you know, we were all over the place, and a lot, a lot of good folks came, and it was nice. And um, we had MJ Hagar, the Senate candidate, stop in. Um, as well as several uh, state Senate candidates, congressional candidates. Um, it was just a really nice time overall. Tired, but, um, you know, I'm worn out from it, but but real happy to be back. So Sounds good. And so, Joe, you are running to be president of the Texas College Democrats. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm running to be the next president of the Texas College Democrats. The Texas College Democrats is the statewide official collegiate arm of the Texas Democratic Party. Basically, we are a federation with um, 20 different chapters, the largest being at UT, University Democrats, which I was previously president of, um, and I finished out my term in December. Um, and we are the one of the largest state federations in the country, um, in the college, a part of the College Democrats of America, which is an even larger federation. Uh, but we have, all in all, over 2,000 members, um, and anyone who's a college student um, and who is a part of a college democratic organization is eligible to join in. Great. And so kind of, can you explain a little bit about what that organization does, what you're running sure. on and how that ties into the upcoming democratic primaries? Sure. So a lot of what we do is we work to connect a lot of our local chapters with campaigns okay. across the state so that we can get them involved because college democratic activists are the activist backbone of the democratic party. A lot of people doing the legwork, um, if they're not people who are retired, um, people who are knocking on doors, making phone calls, are students, because students have more time to do such things and a lot of energy and tenacity, um, and especially in the current political climate. Like, um, it's, it's, we see more and more people showing up. And so connecting those chapters to those campaigns, also um, assisting chapters that need help um, with uh, trainings, all sorts of things like that. Like, for example, at Abilene Christian University, you have to have a Bible study on hmm. campus um, in order to stay legitimate as an organization. And so the College Democrats hold their Bible study um, at Abilene Christian. And so like working with them um, and, and teaching them how to organize um, in those areas is different everywhere you go. Sure. It's really, really important. Um, and so we do a lot of things, um, you know, protests. Um, we have a pretty large media presence, um, both on social media and uh, we have press releases that go out. Um, a lot of it is meeting with party officials in the state um, and trying to, to get together and, and, and figure out things that, for college students to do so that younger people just in general can have a better, bigger voice in the party. Um, and so kind of what I'm running on um, is sort of, I guess, if you will, a, a, a TCD New Deal kind of. Right. right? So basically uh, what we want to do is raise a lot of money, um, working really hard um, to, to host fundraisers. Um, you know, hitting call time really, really hard and building aid packages for a lot of schools across the state, um, need based kind of thing. So we would give money and resources to schools that are from historically marginalized groups, largely populations, um, HBCUs, um, schools in the valley, uh, as well as schools that are rural, um, like Abilene Christian, as mentioned before, and schools mm -hmm. that are, you know, squandered by administrative pressure, like at Baylor. Um, for example. And so we would send money and packages to those people um, to so that we could help them out um, just in, in paying for basic supplies. I mean, a lot of chapters can't even afford clipboards and things like that. And we get very little help from the party itself. 
Um, so a lot of that is on us. So fundraising really, really hard to help people out is one. Secondly, building up our membership to make our membership more representative of the state. Um, so having more HBCU members chartered, having more schools in the Valley chartered and making inroads there um, with local campaigns, with local county parties, um, so that we can push forward the college, the Texas College Democrats into the 21st century. Gotcha. So with the Democratic primaries coming up, I'm, I imagine that y'all are uh, in a particularly busy period. Absolutely. What <laughs> What is your sense of the central issue? I know that a lot of people are talking about electability as the yeah, primary yeah. focus. Is that your sense of what college students are focusing on? Or are they focusing on policy? What exactly is the issue that's really resonating with college students today? In, in my experience, college students are focusing on policy more than anything else. But it's not one specific policy. You know, I know mm -hmm. like um, most opinion polling nationwide, at least in the Democratic Party, is showing like healthcare is the most important issue, which makes sense. But college students have since college students are a microcosm of America itself, there's many different issues um, just subdivided. Right. So a lot of students are focused on I mean, healthcare obviously is a huge issue for many people, um, student loan debt um, and rising costs of tuition. Um, I would also say immigration issues, protecting DACA, um, stuff like that. So I would say people are very, very policy driven. Um, and uh, it, 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 it kind of just depends on people's backgrounds. But that's the beauty of a university, obviously, because, you know, so many different people from so many different backgrounds. So I would definitely say policy is a huge, huge focus, not necessarily electability. Um, you know, mm. I don't know. I mean, if you're looking at the, the old you know, political scientist. I mean, everyone these days is an armchair political scientist. So right, I'm not even yeah, going to claim course. to be one myself. But, you know, everybody goes around, you know, Joe Biden's the most electable. Pete Buttigieg can win the Midwest. Amy Klobuchar. But I don't know very many college students who are supporters of those campaigns. Um, mm -hmm. You know, more, most people I know are, are grounded in, in policy um, unless they're actually working for those campaigns. Um, so, yeah, I would say that would be largely what people are focusing on. Sure. And, and I'm looking here. We actually just got a recent Texas Tribune UT Tyler poll coming out that shows Bernie Sanders pulling ahead uh, yeah, to 24 percent. The Biden's 22. Right. Yeah. yeah. So and that's a bit of a, a flip of the, the how it was going sure. in from the October poll. So what is your sense of what's driving particularly Texas Democrats more towards Sanders, more to the yeah. left? I think the Biden collapse. In a large mm, part, yeah. I mean, we've seen, I mean, Joe Biden has run for president three times and has still never won a caucus or a primary. He's never placed right. third, which is just like kind of insane to think about. Right. But Biden has kind of shown uh, I have a lot of deep respect for Joe Biden as a man, mm -hmm. as a person. Um, but his campaign has not really been on it lately. Um, and that's very evident from performance in both New Hampshire and Iowa. And so I think a lot of Texas Democrats are not necessarily running to Sanders. It's more mm -hmm. of just like people, because he's collapsing, I think Bloomberg is gaining supporters in Texas. Sure, that, yeah, that's, that's exactly what the poll right shows. Yeah, I mean, people who like traditionally would probably support Biden, people like State Representative Julie Johnson out of Dallas, you know, are now co-chairs for Bloomberg. Um, mm -hmm. And so like you, we're kind of seeing a run to Bloomberg, which is causing him to lose supporters, I think. And with Warren not also not doing so hot necessarily right now, even though I think mm -hmm. super, I'm not going to claim to know who's going to win Texas, 
in any way. Sure. But um, I think a lot of those supporters have gone to Sanders as well. Um, so I, I don't know. I think I think those have been kind of the driving factors towards that that latest poll. Now, the, the interesting thing is that I think the kind of layperson view of Texas Democrats would that they would be that they are generally less progressive, perhaps a little bit more uh, in the old cast or in the, the moderate cast. But what we're showing here or what the poll is showing here is that yeah. Sanders is the most, quote unquote, electable against yeah. Trump with Trump only beating Sanders out 47 to 45. Yeah. And again, this is a, a long distance sensitive poll. Sure. But sure. So is is it something that you've seen change in the recent in you know your lifetime from you know Texans in let's say 2016 2012 yeah. being more in that moderate cast changing towards this more progressive cast or does it really have to do with just the specific candidates on offer today I don't think it I don't think it goes with the candidates honestly I think that the mm-hmm. state the Texas Democratic Party is more representative of the face of the Democratic Party 10 years from now than it is in most places, I think. The reason why I say that is you look at a state like Ohio, for example, which, you know, I mean, swing state, but the Democratic Party there in the state in general is getting older and whiter. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, in the state of Texas, there's a huge demographic shift going on um, that, I mean, we could we could just see, it, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it, it, you could just match it up with the results in elections. I mean, Obama lost Texas by 16 points in 2012, Hillary by nine in 2016, Beto by 2.5 in 2018 um and so Mm -hmm. you can see the shift correlating with the with the demographic change and i think that the party in texas is more diverse than it is in most places and a lot younger than it is in most in most places Uh, and there's a lot of leadership opportunities here for younger democrats in the state um you see a lot of people in the texas house for example um which is a whole nother monster to get to but like if we are able to flip the texas house which is looking kind of likely next or Mm -hmm. this year um, you're going to see a lot of younger Democrats serving in leadership positions, which is not necessarily something you'd see in other state legislatures. And so I think because of the younger and more diverse shift in the Democratic Party in Texas from kind of like holdouts from, you know, not the old South, but, you know, uh, holdouts <laughs> from from the past party, like we're seeing more of a progressive progressive shift um, in, in our in our state party. So it, seeing Sanders viable in Texas is not necessarily a surprise to me. Interesting. And so, you know, the you had mentioned that the Texas College of Democrats really is both a, a you know nationally focused, but also state focused organization sure. in, the, in the way. So what down the ticket you know races are y'all really looking at? I know that there's a, a clustered uh, race for John Cornyn's seat in the Senate. Yeah. But in terms of the Texas House and in terms of just down ticket races, what are y'all focusing sure. on? We're trying to target. Um, there's a whole bunch of really, really vulnerable um, Texas House seats. Flipping the Texas House should be is a top priority for the state party, as is a priority mm-hmm. for us. Um, I think that we are going to be focusing on um, many races and counties, especially Tarrant County, for example, right. where um, yep. if you look at the congressional district, Texas 24, which is also um, a race to watch, um, where you have Republican incumbent Kenny Marchant retiring um, after Beto O'Rourke won the district, even though he was able to hold on. Um, with mm-hmm. several star power Democratic candidates running in the primary, right? Like, under the umbrella of that congressional seat alone, there are six Texas House seats that all came within three points last last time around. And so if we have a really big Democratic push in areas like that, 
also in Harris County, there are various Democratic seats that um, are are were very very hotly contested and won narrowly by Republicans. But mm-hmm. if there's like a larger turnout in 2020, we could definitely flip those seats. Um, same in Dallas too. I mean, some races were won by just 47 votes in Dallas County, um, and right. people don't realize it. But we are just nine seats away from flipping the Texas House, which mm-hmm. would just be bonkers. And 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 again, nobody <laughs> realizes it because, like, for our entire lifetimes, we've remembered a Republican-controlled state completely, just monolithically. And so we might have the check in place after this year. And so we're trying to focus our efforts at getting our chapters out at places like University of North Texas, at places like University of Houston Rice, um, at places like University of Texas at Arlington, like trying to get people out to go – over and so we and try to get people to work um in uh, in those races now we are also um focusing um you know a lot of congressional races too really the only primary where i guess i'm going to like declare my support or whatever is mm-hmm. the x28 for jessica cisneros um okay. and henry cuellar if you've been focusing on that race at all um cuellar um you know Trump's favorite Democrat, as he's been called, um, votes (laughs) votes with Trump's agenda 70 percent of the time. And he's facing a progressive challenger from the left, Jessica Cisneros, who's a 26 year old, actually former university Democrats member um, who is running. And so uh, we're very excited to support her. That's the only that's the only primary we will controversially involve ourselves in, if you will. Sure. Uh, But um, uh, yeah, so a lot of interesting races going on down ballot. I think in Travis County alone, just to kind of shift away. Um, there's really, really important races for a lot of students to get involved in. Um, mm-hmm. I would look at the district attorney's race uh, between yep. Margaret Moore, um, Jose Garza, and Aaron Martinson, um, because like um, Margaret Moore has a very long history of not prosecuting sexual assault cases and closed mm-hmm. a bunch of cases on the rape kit back backlog. Um, yeah, that's a very big race. Also, uh, very controversial prosecutorial decisions, uh, such as. Uh, for example, there was a police sting operation where a police officer dressed as a homeless man and had a hundred dollars sticking out of his pocket and another homeless man took it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was charged with felony stealing from a police officer, um, even though there's literally no way he could have known. But, right. but the Travis County D.A. was was prosecuting that case. And so you have both Aaron Martinson, who's a UT law professor, who is um, a, a sexual assault advocate, uh, prevention advocate, and um, Jose Garza, who mm-hmm. also is focusing on sexual assault issues, but is also criminally criminal justice reform minded. Um, so that race has kind of shaken up Austin um, with many different sides being taken in that race. Um, Garza in particular, building up a pretty interesting coalition of people around him um, from establishmentarian figures to more progressive figures in the city. Um, so this, there's a lot of fascinating stuff going down ballot that um, our chapters are involving themselves in. Sure. Um, so keep your eye out. Uh, president, even though it's exciting, you know, it's not the only thing uh, <laughs> Definitely not the only thing there. Right. And so returning to the top of the ticket a little bit at the end here, is there a candidate, you know, in presidential races, the coattail theory is is always something that people focus on, you know, who's going to really bring out the progressive base, bring out the Democratic base. Is there a candidate that the Texas College Democrats is focusing on at the top of the ticket that's going to have the most or who's going to have the most impact, you know, on the bottom of the ticket? Or is that something that you're not really concerned about? Um, it's something I think about a lot, though, again, I'm not going to pretend to know who's going to mm-hmm. help who or not. I can't sit here and say, you know, if we nominate Bernie Sanders, every moderate Democrat in a suburb is going to lose or something. I'm not sure. going to make that like rash statement. 
or like, you know, I can't say the same as like, you know, we nominated Bloomberg or something like that. And like that would hurt pe- people or help people. Uh, but I think the co- it, it definitely is is important. And because it's hard in this year, especially because if you're the average voter, you know, you you don't know anybody not named Donald Trump or mm-hmm. the Democratic nominee. And so it's going to be hard for whoever is running to separate themselves from the nominee. And so it's very, very important who we nominate up top. But um, again, like we have no, I have no idea personally how, I I don't know how that would affect each race. I'd have to get closer until uh, to the actual time. Well, folks, this has been Joe Casino mounting a run for the president of the Texas College Democrats. Joe, do you have any final words for college students going into the Democratic primary? I would just say that it, um, please go out and vote. Um, the, I would be remiss if I wasn't doing my job and saying that the uh, early vote starts on February 18th. Yep. And if you're at UT, you can vote at the PCL or at the FAC. Uh, early vote will go on for two weeks. And then election day is March 3rd. So please get out there and vote. Um, you know, it's, it's super important. Like a lot of important local races that um, need your attention. Um, so please, please go out. Uh, we already saw the huge increase in turnout in 2018. Let's keep it rolling in 2020. And so that's all I got to say. All righty. Well, that was Joe Casino talking about the state of the race in the Lone Star State. We are going to move on to a kind of more broad overview of the state of the Democratic primary, the various lanes that we have got in that race. What we're really seeing here is most people are discussing the race in terms of the progressives versus the moderates, the kind of Bidens versus the Bernies, the Bernies versus the Buttigieg. Um, But I think that that structure has gotten weakened, at least, with the the results of the Iowa caucuses, with the results of the second choice voters. So, Matthew, I'm going to bring you in here to kind of discuss what you see as the real fundamental divide between the two segments of the the Democratic Party in regards to this primary? Well, in my own personal opinion, it, the kind of dividing it between progressive and a more moderate sense doesn't really help out too well because you've got a bunch of, first off, we had a bunch of crazy candidates that mm. were kind of blurring the line, like my old boy Yang, right, <laughs> who, you know, very progressive UBI, very not progressive opinions on healthcare, right, and you have other, you know, a bunch of other candidates also have kind of varying lines on that. Obviously, Bernie is our kind of quintessential uh, progressive, but that doesn't hold true for everyone else. So, if in my frank opinion, the thing that tends to still come up is the idea of the kind of wild carder can- uh, candidate and the more return to normalcy kind of candidate. Biden is the peak of return to normalcy, but uh, Buttigieg kind of falls a little bit into this lane, too, of kind of trying to get back to what is, quote unquote, sensible politics, right? As opposed to some like Bernie or some like, some may say Warren, who are choosing the crazier, extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures kind Mm. of uh, divide, which is going to be interesting to see which one of those kind of pulls out, but it's going to be interesting from there. So Connor, I'll kind of pitch the same question to you. Is, Is the popular theory of the progressives versus the moderates, you know, something that you see as accurate or is there another fundamental divide? Well, I think there's a real, there's a... I mean, you see it in every single debate. This debate on healthcare keeps coming up and up and up. And I think that it's a very real divide, but I don't think it's as stark as people want to make it out to be. At the end of the day, we agree on something like 80% of the issues, 90% of the issues. Um, 
And so, and at the end of the day, we're going to, we're all going to be better candidates in my opinion than Donald Trump would be. And so I think that, uh, I think it's getting a little overplayed, but I definitely think that the conversation and the debate around how we're going to solve issues like healthcare is important. Right. And you've written about this kind of electability question in the past for the order and have, you know, really kind of questioned whether electability is even a, a coherent concept or something that should be the kind of primary focus. So another potential divide is the electable versus the non-electable. You know, we just saw a UT Texas Tribune poll that kind of went down the uh, presidential ballot and discussed who would win in Texas. And then there are, are multiple polls that kind of discuss who is the most electable versus President Trump. Is electability something that voters should be focusing on as their primary focus, or how do you see that issue kind of playing out? It's easy to get caught into it because it is the number one issue Democrats have is who mm -hmm. can beat Donald Trump in November. Uh, I think that it's a, electability is a little bit of a made-up concept in that sense because at the beginning, it's all name recognition until it's not. Right. All the all the early polls, right, had Joe Biden soaring among, you know, as the front front runner for the party. And as election results have started to come in, we've seen that that's not necessarily the case. And I think that, um, again, it's electability until it's not. And uh, you've seen Bernie Sanders have a real rise. There was that summer where everyone was like, Warren's going to be, you know, the progressive candidate. Sure, of course. Um, and that went away. And so I think... Uh, I think people need to vote for who they like as opposed to who they think is going to be so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Matthew, if you want to respond to that, I, I think the, the question of electability sort of focuses on the wrong issue in that it's, like you said, it's, it's about name recognition until you get down to, you know, where name recognition has kind of evened out over the course of the, the primary and so, Matthew, do you see another issue kind of on the horizon that's going to be the, the central focus of the race, or is electability really going to be the key thing throughout? Well, I'm just going to say it straight. The most electable candidate is the candidate who wins, right? If we look at old, older elections, there's a lot of times where the person we thought would have never been in the race, let alone having won it, ended up becoming the president. I mean, even just as so close as 2016. If you would ask someone in 2014, did you think Donald Trump was going to become the president? I think with very rare exception, they would probably say no. You might also get a few laughs. Um, so really what we're looking at is just whoever the people are going to end up supporting. I mean, we're not getting a vermin supreme, for instance, sure. but... <laughs> Um, my heart, really, my heart saddens at that. But yes, <laughs> whoever comes to the end is who's going to be the nominee, and whoever is the nominee is nine out of ten going to be the one that's going to be supported through the convention. And so, actually, that's that's brings up an interesting point because Nick, you had sent that Washington Examiner article that really sort of undermined or questioned the whole progressive versus moderate, you know, lane theory. Um, you, you saw, for instance, Elizabeth Warren supporters were instead of flocking to Bernie Sanders, were instead going to support, you know, Pete Buttigieg in in some instances. Um, and so, is it something where you think that the the popular theory, the idea that you know Warren Sanders are are in a group of their own, and Biden and Buttigieg are kind of in their own camp is that something that you ascribe to or do you think that there are more nuanced divides there i well i i think it's it's definitely an interesting take what i sent was um tim carney's article in the washington mm -hmm. examiner from um the previous week and i think it partly it undermines the idea that there's too many parties within the, the sure, democratic right. party there's a center left and the far left and 
you know, there's these two parties kind of at odds with each other. And um, it kind of re-highlights. And I think if we, it, we may have been forgetting about this because our the field has kind of coalesced in a way that all the candidates are, are primarily white, primarily male. Um, and, you know, we've forgotten about identity pol- politics. But um, Carney made the point that in many ways it's more um, – it's about more about identity politics than ever, and he, and he divides the race into college-educated people. So both Warren and Buttigieg do really well with college-educated people, and then non-college-educated people who um, ironically support both Sanders and Biden. And so it's weird to think that San- that Sanders and Biden are in a lane together, right. whereas the prevailing narrative has been that they are um, that they are uh, diametrically opposed to each other. So I, I think it's interesting. It adds more nuance to the picture. I don't think that I don't think that the um, the kind of two fa- ide- ideological factions mm-hmm. really applies. I'm not sure that it's all identity politics either. I think. Um, every every voter has their own priority. Some are more ideologically driven. Some are more identity driven. And um, I think it just goes to show that a lot of the predictions of, you know, Warren drops out and X and Y are going to happen, and mm-hmm. Klobuchar drops out, X and Y will happen. I I just I it casts a lot of doubt on those predictions for me. Yeah, and uh, you know, this is something that I have kind of done a lot of uh, writing about. In fact, I saw you thumbing through the the book that is kind of ur text on on rational voter theory, um, Brian Kaplan's myth of the rational voter, the idea that a lot of our political beliefs are performative to an extent, the idea that you kind of put on a, a, not a mask, but your support has signaling components, things that you want it to convey to others about yourself. And so I, I think that I was looking at the Tim Carney article and seeing a kind of different divide, this idea of the kind of fake wonkery versus like, whoa, these guys are too radical. The, the you know, numbers of the college educated voters really, I think, bear that argument out that there is, is some segment of the population that says Sanders way too radical, but Warren, she's got a plan. She's got all of these numbers and it's, it's about, you know, I'm not too radical. These people have this kind of wonkery around them. And I honestly don't think that it extends into like a deep analysis of the policies. And that's not a criticism of voters. I mean, there's no real reason why you should even concern yourself with the policies of the candidates. I mean, your your vote has such a, a low kind of decisiveness. Um, so there's there's a there's a really good rational argument to be made for kind of ignoring this and, and the signaling you know components of that taking hold. But I think that the divide that I'm seeing is really about like. Bernie is too radical. Warren's got a plan, or you know, um, Biden is too what have you, senile, too insidery. Mayor Pete, he's you know the outsider, but he, they're they're very similar. If you look at the the policy components of it, so Connor, I want you to kind of respond to that. Um, am I just being too libertarian and too cynical, or is that something that you see as well? Yes, um, <laughs> I see. Short, short answer, yes. <laughs> well, so I think. I think you see, um, especially as far as your vote not mattering, I mean, we've seen super close races here in um, Iowa and New Hampshire, and the difference is so small between some of these candidates um, that, you know, 
how many people you get out to go vote with you and stuff like that really could make a difference. I will say to um, both Nick and uh, Matt's point, uh, you saw with Trump in 2016, as far as this, you know, a lot of the folks are talking about how Sanders isn't going to win. You know, we're a center left party. The majority of people were split between Klobuchar, especially in New Hampshire, with between mm-hmm. Klobuchar, Pete and Biden. Um the results that I saw uh, on these was that a lot of the progressive vote has rallied behind Sanders from Warren and Warren had, you know, not a great night, especially in New Hampshire, which is a Boston market, um, which was really interesting. But the same thing was said about Trump in uh, 2016 was that, you know, he's only getting 22, 26%. Let's see, you know, what Rubio and Jeb Bush do. And let's see how the establishment coalesces around one candidate to beat him. And I think that if moderates, if you know in this moderate versus progressive divide if moderates don't rally behind one candidate uh i'm biased and wish it's pete but you know it could be klobuchar or it could be biden if they don't rally behind one candidate bernie has a very clear path to winning mm-hmm. um and i think to to the point as far as you know they don't follow the necessary policy things you saw that in the iowa caucus right when warren or when biden didn't have 15 percent or more and become viable they didn't just go to their ideological partner. They went all over the place. You saw a lot of Warren folks sure. go to Klobuchar or vice versa. Um, Biden folks split between Pete and Bernie. Like it's not as clear path as as a lot of people want to think. Yeah, and so Matthew, you know, looking forward to Super Tuesday, is this something that is going to provide us some sense of of a definite? You know, here is what the issues are. Here is what the divide is. Or are we still going to be, you know, having this conversation two weeks out, having this conversation, you know, going into the, the debate? What is your sense of, of what the issues are going to be, what the kind of fundamental divide is, and whether that's going to be clear and definitive after Super Tuesday? Well, in our job of predicting the future, we're not always accurate. But the unfortunate thing is here, going into this, it's not going to even end up being an ideology. I think people are going to go in with mostly their specific issues that they have in mind mm. to try to basically choose whoever they think will be best for it. Some people will go in because they want to have a candidate that they personally identify with or they personally believe in, or some people will just go in because they want want uh, what they think is a decent healthcare plan. Mm. So that's what we're going to end up seeing on Super Tuesday. Um, it's There's not going to be a you know, massive shift of one to the other. We're going to see basically what we've seen over the last few weeks. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, too, is I, I think the question of identity gets collapsed into, you know, race or into gender or into, you know, sexual orientation or all of these kind of essentialist characteristics. But there is a broader sense of identity that can encapsulate college education that can encapsulate background and so that's what i was getting at earlier with the idea that like if you define yourself as an educated voter as an informed voter you are more likely to be inclined towards these kind of people who who describe themselves or or publicly you know position themselves as the wonky candidate you know warren and to an extent Buttigieg or yang even and that that is more performative than it is actual more about the kind of I support the the candidate with the plan versus I support the candidate with this specific healthcare policy. Um, and then there's the kind of Sanders identity, which is, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the way that politics has been going on for years. I'm tired of the way that, you know, President Trump has degraded the office. And we just want something to shake things up. And I think that's exactly the kind of, you know, energy that brought Trump into the office. And in fact, you know, the, the polls that show you know the, the or that d- dig into the electability question 
I think that there used to be a sense that Biden was the was most the most obviously electable candidate. We want to return to normalcy. We want somebody kind of absolutely, you know, 180 opposite of Trump. But I think that the country, I mean, in in the 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 caucuses and the primaries are are showing this that the country is actually just we don't want that return to normalcy. We want the kind of shake it up, get this guy out. You know, and so I think that counsels pretty heavily for looking at Sanders as the the likely fronter. Connor, I'm going to go to you and have you respond. To that. Well, I know it was mentioned earlier as far as you know Pete being like this kind of wanting to go back, um, and I think you know looking at his watching his speeches and seeing you know you can go on his website and stuff and see it. Uh, it's he's not he doesn't want to go back to the normal mm. because the normal is what put Trump in the office in the sure, first place. Right, and so we have to move past and. Um, as he'll say, turn the page on uh, this new era that we're going to be entering in, which is a post-Trump presidency. Sure. Um, for better, you know, for I think for worse, uh, Trump has has changed the White House and how the office of the presidency is going to exist f- for a long, long time. And um, again, going back to this normalcy that kind of Biden folks have been uh, advocating for, I, I think is a mistake and that we need to be moving forward on this. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that, you know, even the kind of concept of normalcy that is typically attributed to Biden is radically different than the the normal kind of Democratic platform, Democratic policies, even under, you know, as most recently as Clinton or even, you know, Obama. You know, Clinton, the the era of big government is over. I mean, we have come so far from that that I'm not sure that the the concept of normalcy even obtains in the same way. You know, going going into this race, going into 2020, the the normalcy that you know got Trump elected, the normalcy that I think we had had to you know we were tired of was a, a normalcy kind of started under Bill Clinton, you know, continued under Bush to some extent. And even continued under Obama, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with foreign involvement, with the just general view that that politics wasn't serving. You know, the the classic example of this is the Obama '08 voters, the Trump '16 voters, the same people that voted for Obama in '08 were tired of the normalcy that that represented, and so, you know, you've seen it ex- played out. Biden is collapsing. I mean, he's imploding. He he will. There is almost, I I think, no way unless Super Tuesday. You know, he has a definitive you know win in terms of of black support, in terms of the just overall you know results. I I think he collapses after that, and the normalcy that we get after that is not a normalcy that we've ever experienced in America. And kind of last thoughts on this, Matthew, uh, and then we will go into our last segment. Well, I'm going to say it, but yeah, I think Yang said it best. When it comes to Donald Trump, what we had was Donald Trump is not the cause of all of our problems, which we would like to kind of say it is, but that's not how this works. He's a symptom of the systems that exist underneath, right? People, what got Trump elected are the problems that people need solved or else you're just going to have Trump get elected again or a similar candidate or maybe a worse candidate. So you need to address the systemic issues that people are really themselves concerned about, which is going to be really important keeping into this, uh, going into this race and seeing which candidates can really address it like that. Mm. 
um, there's not really such a thing as normalcy. We like to think that there's this golden time in American history where things were normal and this was standard. <laughs> but really, I mean, at what point can you go back to where it's, ah, this is how American politics is supposed to work? Right, exactly. Do you have to go back to FDR? Do you go back to, to the Jeffersonian politics? You're not going to find any, um, like, uh, there's no system of standard, you know, there's no standard politics. Um, but as we go into this one, this is one that's going to be built off of the issues that got Trump put in office. The fact that the economy is exploding, but simultaneously the American worker is having their wages stagnate and having their benefits be cut. Right? How do you address things like the foreign uh, economy is getting much stronger while simultaneously we're losing jobs in the home front? Um, so as we have these issues going forward, we're going to end up seeing whatever candidate is going to succeed the best is going to be the candidate who can answer questions like that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's a, exactly the right point that like even in the post-war consensus, the sort of beginnings of the increased polarization were starting to form in, in the, the Democratic Party. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, this concept of normalcy, this nostalgia for a period that never existed. I mean, people talk about polarization as though it's the worst thing that, you know, or it's the worst it's ever been in America. It's not. I mean, 1856, the Know Nothing Party was shiving people at the polls. Um, I mean, if I may jump in, we did at least in one time in American history have a congressman beat another congressman into a three-week coma. So right. things, yeah. I think, are still actually better than they've been in the past. Yeah, so transitioning to our own three-week coma, we're going to be just blatantly stealing from the Reason podcast in our last section where we talk about whatever non-political content we have been consuming either into our ears or our brain holes. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go to Matthew because I know that uh, – you have have a, a broad and and wide ranging taste. What have you been consuming the last two weeks? Uh, the cons uh, the thing I've most been looking at recently, and I'm not really into it so far. But there's a man named Thomas Frank who runs a thing called College Info Geek, and through his podcast, I've learned of a book called Ultra Learning. Um, I can't remember the man's first name. It's by a writer named Young, and it's about how you can take a subject that is much more difficult and much more complicated than you think, and then learn it very quickly by basically immersing yourself in it, right? In his case in point, he learned the entire MIT, uh, open, uh, the, MIT the entire MIT computer science uh, program in a year just by using the open courseware, soft, uh, the open courseware package they have available. And uh, it's this kind of thing that I'm personally myself pursuing in Spanish. Hopefully, he signs the cross. Um, but we'll end up see uh, we'll end up seeing how that goes for me. It's been a really good read so far, though. Mm. Also, The Witcher is a fantastic TV series. I'm just gonna drop that one out there Ooh, in case you're curious. That's an interesting take. I've heard some some critical feedback about The Witcher that. Uh... The, the fans of the game are not necessarily the fans of the TV show. Well, good, because it's based on the books. <laughs> Great. Um, Connor, I'm going to go to you. What have you been ingesting into your zeitgeist? Uh, so I have improved from two weeks ago and uh, have expanded beyond the sports section of New York Times. Um, but I, uh, as far as non-political media consumption i saw jojo rabbit uh mm. at the union here on campus um with another writer james mismash uh i was not really excited to go see it but it ended up being super hilarious uh just watching that um complete mess uh and then i my 
I'll do a shout out. My brother, uh, I've been watching him at his swim meet. He just qualified for uh, nationals. Uh, so he's on track for Olympic trials and uh, hopefully Tokyo uh, for swimming. So, yeah. Well, there we go. Um, and Nick, what have you been digesting, consuming into your eh, brain hole? We're going to go and we're going to repeat it. Interesting. Um, I... Uh... So as a recovering athlete, I've uh, stumbled across a, um, a email newsletter by a uh, writer for Outside Magazine. Um, his name is Brad Stolberg. His uh, newsletter is called The Growth Equation. And it's just a super interesting mix of um, just kind semi-wonkery of um, psychological tricks of resting and exercising mm-hmm. and all these sorts of uh, really cool things um, for someone who – who likes being active and uh, relies upon it for for living and not being entirely stressed out twenty four seven? It's been uh, it's been a huge help. So uh, I definitely commend that to to anyone who's uh, uh, you know needs needs some guidance on exercise and well being. There we go. Well, I have been reconsuming the case against education. It's a by Brian Kaplan. Um, I thought this was non-political only material. It's broadly non. I mean, I, has so, Brian Kaplan ever done anything non-political in his life? Mm, ever? Tough, tough. Uh, no, I mean, I was actually, you know, this is something I've been kind of thinking about for a while. I've, you know, I think if we all reflect on our college experience, especially, you know, if you are in a major that has dubious, you know dubious connection or a dubious connection to what you actually want to do with your life it's very difficult when you're sitting through a finance class or a stats class or a a tech transfer class to connect it to really anything that you will ever do in your life or or even you know i was i was sitting in finance class having the thought that if if this is the content i have to learn if this is the material that i have to use on a daily basis i'd you know i would rather work at a bait shop you know the the so the the case against education makes a very clear and cogent argument for the idea that much of, of college is has to do with signaling that we have systematically distorted the market in favor of college, but that college doesn't actually really impart that much substantive knowledge. It mostly has to do with getting the degree at the end of the thing. And so, yeah, I've just been down in my feels thinking about, you know, just just all of the ways in which the system that we have currently is not serving students is not serving the country and so yeah i've i i i really suggest that if you are in a similar boat in a major that is tangentially or tenuously connected to what you ever want to do with your life that you pick up the book maybe it's not too late for you if you're a freshman <laughs> or considering graduate school or just looking for a non-political read yeah, yeah. Totally <laughs> not if you need totally. a good emotional feel-good book while you're on the pot apparently it's brian kaplan <laughs> yeah no it's uh it's a real page turner <laughs> and um it fits pretty nicely with his other work that i'm that i'm also a big fan of um and the other plug i will give which is entirely non-political is a YouTube video of Tommy Emmanuel and two other guitar players playing Sultans of Swing. I can't append it at the end of the podcast because of the nuisance copyright laws, but it is just phenomenal. I will link to it in the show notes. 
it is a great example of the way that mastery of a skill, mastery of an instrument works in unison with the mastery of others, and that Marx was entirely wrong when he thought that specialization was going to be the death of capitalism and our (laughs) markets. Um, This has been the Texas Order Podcast. You are listening to the host, Wes Dotson, with Connor, Matthew, and Nick in the room. Our lovely podcast manager, Candice, is the reason that this can happen, and we will see you back in two weeks.